This program is brought to you free of charge by an anonymous benefactor in honor of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. Here is your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Spiritual Life. I am Father Bernard Utley, and today my topic is contemplation. The best way to start this topic, I think, is to start somewhat on a personal note. Uh, the subject of the prayer of contemplation is definitely my favorite subject in the spiritual life. I have several favorite subjects. I especially love the doctrine of divine providence, uh, perfect contrition, and prayer in general but most especially contemplation. Back when I first asked to start these shows on the spiritual life, I knew that contemplation, particularly the beginning stages of it, was absolutely on the top of my list of shows that I have to cover. And this for several reasons. One is simply that it is so important and practical and would be, I think, of great help to many souls. Second, this topic needed to be covered because in the traditional Catholic world, no one ever really discusses contemplation. Knowledge concerning this form of prayer is simply dying out. It's being forgotten, uh, along with many other aspects of the spiritual life. So much of our concentration as traditional Catholics has been put on apologetics, controversy, controversial theology, that we tend to lose sight of the deeper things of the soul, how to become holy, how to pray, how to love God. The doctrine concerning contemplation particularly the beginning stages of it, the transition period between meditation and effective prayer to contemplation, which is often called the dark night of the senses, all this is almost forgotten. It's tragic, and it's a great shame because it is my firm belief that this is one of the most important periods in the spiritual life to understand and get right. Many devout Catholic souls, more than what most people think, are actually at this stage in their spiritual life but because of the lack of knowledge and lack of spiritual direction, most fall back, backwards. Most will not progress. Most will not become contemplatives, even though God is offering this great grace to them. In fact, what I am about to say may come as a shock and may sound somewhat ironic, perhaps sad. I was never taught about contemplation at the monastery, which I lived for 12 years, Christ the King Abbey. We considered it to be a contemplative Benedictine community. But ironically, the doctrine of contemplation, at least according to the great masters of the spiritual life, particularly St. John of the Cross, wasn't taught us. Sometimes the word contemplation was used, but never explained in any detail or any accuracy, not even close. My abbot, Abbot Leonard Gerardina, for all his great qualities, he was a great man. Uh, he never taught us what contemplation actually is because I don't think he understood it himself. And I don't, I don't think he was ever taught what it is. By this, I'm not saying that he never experienced this type of prayer personally, uh, that he wasn't a good holy man, but that he never taught it, never explained the traditional doctrine concerning contemplation, never really quoted or referred to St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, and the other great mystical authors. So the general ignorance, indifference, and perhaps misunderstanding of contemplation goes back farther than the last 40 years of the traditional movement. It stretches to Catholics pre-Vatican II. Perhaps this ignorance and indifference to spiritual things led to Vatican II and the loss of faith. Who knows? I'm sure it contributed. So therefore, I and actually another monk had to discover it on our own. We spent several years studying the doctrine concerning contemplation, trying to get to the bottom of it, as it were, as there are differing schools of thought and authors who disagree on certain points. Uh, and I, I definitely found the right authors and the right books at the right time. Uh, for that, I'm grateful. Knowledge doesn't make one automatically holy, but it can help tremendously. It, it is important. It's a good start. 
The truth shall set you free, free from unnecessary obstacles due to ignorance or false ideas. However, you do not progress in prayer by reading about prayer or talking about prayer, but by praying. We all want to make progress in prayer. But how do we do that? What is progress in prayer? Is progress in prayer simply more vocal prayers, longer and more detailed meditations on various religious subjects? Not at all. I've already talked about vocal prayer and meditation in previous episodes, and I said that progress in prayer is progress towards simplicity, a loving simplicity, unity, and quality, not towards sophisticated complexity, multiplicity, or mere quantity. Not only is our prayer life usually a complicated affair, our heart is far from being truly simple and childlike, is a tangled web of hidden and selfish desires and motives. And for this reason, we must be converted and become as little children with God, especially in our prayer life. Our prayer must become, as it were, our whole life, something that is a part of us, spontaneously flowing from the inmost depths of our heart, rather than just an artificial or superficial routine imposed from without. Part of this conversion process usually uh, includes the transition to the habitual use of the simple prayer of contemplation. Progress in the spiritual life is often misunderstood because true progress tends to have certain side effects, as it were, which give to the soul the impression that it's going backwards, losing ground instead of progressing. And this is especially case with progress in prayer and is particularly evident when a devout soul is on the threshold, the beginning of infused contemplation, which I believe is an ordinary yet mystical grace, which is more common than is generally supposed or at least should and could be more common. There are many souls, both religious and lay, to whom God is trying to lead to contemplation, but either through ignorance or bad direction, do not know how to cooperate with his action and his grace. And failure to comprehend what is going on in the state will cause one to unwittingly frustrate and hinder God's plan for one's sanctification, resulting in a difficult and unnecessary trial in the spiritual life, which may eventually lead one to give up the pursuit of the interior life completely. Nothing sounds so wonderful and delightful in books than contemplation, but nothing can be so crucifying and mystifying and confusing when first experienced. At least this is so at the beginning, until one acquires the habit and taste for this new form of prayer, and then it becomes for the contemplative a priceless treasure a bottomless well of interior strength, joy, and peace. Now, the classic signs that God is drawing the soul towards a simpler, more profound type of prayer, that is to to contemplation, are the following. The curious inability to meditate and an interior repugnance in reflecting on anything definite during prayer. Also, aridity that is, the, the lack of sensible consolation and sweetness combined with a mysterious discontentment with the things of the world, and yet an equally mysterious satisfaction with and desire to remain gazing upon God in simplicity, silence, faith, and love. So in other words, one feels an interior repugnance to think and speak much in prayer, yet one finds great peace and strength and a deep consolation which are beyond feelings, and just remaining attentive to the presence of God in silence and faith. If we are in this state, we will often feel that we have lost our prayer life, lost our spiritual life, that we're losing ground, wasting time, that we're idle, that we should be busy thinking many pious thoughts, meditating on various holy subjects, and reciting many prayer formulas Rather than praying in such a simple way, an idiotic way, one spiritual author calls it the the prayer of stupidity because it feels like that. But this is not so, according to the masters of the spiritual life. This dry prayer is a sign of progress, and we should abandon ourselves to this new attraction with complete trust and generosity, especially when those signs are present. And I'll go deeper into those signs as we go on. This is the beginnings of infused contemplation, according to St. John of the Cross. I want to make it clear at the outset that in these episodes on contemplation, I will mostly be dealing with the beginnings of infused contemplation, not the heights of contemplation and all the various interior mansions which St. Teresa of Avila talks about in her famous book, The Interior Castle, or the heights of contemplation that is 
found in parts of the works of St. John of the Cross called you know, Transforming Union or Mystical Marriage. Someday I'll, I will talk about those, but those states are pretty rare, very rare, and, the, and of less practical importance for the average Catholic. The contemplation that I will be dealing with is the often difficult and confusing transition period that a beginning devout soul experiences when they transition from vocal or mental prayer to the more simplified prayer of contemplation. This transition is accompanied or or rather caused by a crisis in the spiritual life called the dark night of the senses. And this state, as I will show, is far more common than what people would normally think. Uh, To use a title of a wonderful little book on contemplation by Father Gabriel Diefenbach, a Capuchin priest, uh, Franciscan, it is a common mystic prayer. And that's the title of his book, Common Mystic Prayer. It's reprinted. I highly recommend this book. I will quote from it uh, often throughout these episodes. Now, I wanted to talk about something I said in a previous episode. I believe it was the episode on meditation. This might have disturbed some listeners that I criticized Father Tankery and his treatment of the progress in prayer and the beginnings of contemplation in his famous work, The Spiritual Life. I'm sorry if this scandalized any listeners, but what we have to understand is that just because a book was written and published before Vatican II doesn't mean that every single opinion and view of that author is a dogma of the faith. As in the case of dogmatic theology and moral theology, the same is true of ascetical and mystical theology, that there are different schools of thought and different conflicting opinions about those difficult matters. This is normal and healthy. The church has not made any final decision or declarations on most of these issues. So it is a matter of looking at what the various authors teach and then seeing what makes logical sense, what have the saints said, what uh, the great mystics and theologians have said, and what ascetical and mystical spiritual writers have said in general. There are legitimate differences of opinion on these subjects. My objection to what Father Tankery teaches is not to say that he's a heretic or the book as a whole is bad or against faith or morals, but that on certain issues, there are authors that disagree with him and have very good reasons for doing so. And one of those authors is St. John of the Cross himself. There's also Father Gergo Lagrange, Father John Aaron Tarot, the uh, Dominican spiritual writer, and really the vast majority of Dominican spiritual writers. And, and, and most Carmelites, there's Franciscans, uh, Benedictines, that would disagree with Father Tancri's treatment. Again, to disagree with a spiritual writer's theory and say that in practice it will or could stunt someone's spiritual growth is not the same thing as saying that there's a little poison in a cookie that you're going to eat, just a little bit of poison, but it's mostly a good cookie. No, it's not the same thing. That that poison cookie or food item will kill you, but a spiritual book that may have an incorrect opinion or theory will not cause you to lose your soul or commit a mortal sin or lead you to heresy. It may slow your progress, slow your spiritual progress, but it can't totally stop it. God's grace is more powerful than that. Charity covers a multitude of sins, as well as a multitude of mistakes of a theoretical or even practical nature. I hope this helps because there will be many times when spiritual writers will disagree and it should not scandalize us or cause anyone to have doubts of faith. These matters are not dogmas or even theologically certain doctrines. They are opinions. Some are safer than others. Perhaps some are better than others, but nothing is against the faith itself. And I I won't claim that everything I say in these talks on the spiritual life are day for day either, or the final word. I try to be very careful in what I say, and I, I have the quotes to back up what I say, but there are legitimate contrary opinions which are not against the faith. Some people may not like this because it is way easier to live in a black and white world. But there is a saying that uh, beware of the man of one book because You will judge everything by the opinions of that one author and try to squeeze yourself or others, especially if you have the office of guiding others like a confessor or spiritual director, you will squeeze them into that one author's categories. But the more you study a topic in depth, almost any field of study, the more you realize that things are often more complicated and nuanced. So all this is by way of preference. I will go further into details as time goes on. 
Now, when preparing for these episodes on contemplation, I have wrestled with how can I present it clearly and thoroughly and yet be practical and interesting? There's so many approaches, but I guess the best way that I can think of is to more or less follow the path that I had to take to understand these issues myself. So I wanted to start off with an excerpt from a book that perhaps many would not quote from because of when it was published. The book is called A Heart to Know Thee by Father E.J. Cuskily. The reason why I hesitated to quote this book uh, in preparing this episode is because it was first published by Newman Press in 1963 and the imprimatur dated 1961. But before anyone's head explodes, let me explain. I normally don't read or ever quote a book after 1960 or even after the death of Pope Pius XII. However, I think this is a tad silly as not all Catholic writers or the bishops who gave the imprimaturs immediately became modernist heretics at the death of Pope Pius XII. There are still some good stuff published in the early 60s before Vatican Council II. But in general, it is true that from the council on, Due to a large extent, because of its influence, the writings become more and more modernist, ecumenical, questionable. So I quote this book because I found it to have a couple very good chapters. It was a book that I happened to stumble across, and what I found led me down a path to study more from older sources, which certainly backed up everything that Father Cuscoli was saying on prayer. So I will use Father Cuscoli. Uh, what he has to say as an outline, as it were, and comment and back up what he is saying with other authors, notably by St. John of the Cross himself, and Abbot John Chapman, which I love as a spiritual writer in his spiritual letters, Father Gergul Lagrange, Father Aaron Taro, and others. There's many others. By using this chapter, I'm not therefore endorsing everything Father Cuscoli may have written. I have no idea what else he wrote. All I'm saying is that what he says in this chapter on personal prayer uh, and contemplation is quite correct, as I will prove. And this excerpt is a bit long, but I think it's well worth it. I want these episodes to not be just a brief overview, but a relatively thorough treatment. I will do an overview and a summary down the line, uh, maybe an episode that's 30 minutes long or 20 minutes long and just get the highlights. But, but for those truly interested in growing in knowledge about the spiritual life, the length will be well worth it. So with this caveat out of the way, I will proceed. I start with Father Cuscoli's 12th chapter, which is entitled Personal Prayer. Near the beginning of the chapter, he says, quote, There are many good people, religious, priests, and laity alike, who wonder whether they are making any progress in prayer, who often feel that they are not doing so, and who either worry that they are not or resign themselves to the fact that they will make no progress. Let us begin with the outline of progress in prayer as described by Tankery in his widely known book, The Spiritual Life. The quotation will be somewhat lengthy, but it is well worthwhile, even necessary to see it at some length. And just a comment here, of course, is a little bit confusing. We have a, a excerpt within an excerpt, but he, he wants to start by quoting Tankery and then uh, discussing why he disagrees with them. And just so you know, the, the name Tankery, sometimes it's pronounced Tankeray, uh, Tankeray. Um, I don't know which is the, the correct version. I just say Tankery, Father Tankery. Uh, so... We continue with the quote from uh, The Spiritual Life. Beginners, as we have said, need to acquire convictions. Therefore, they insist upon reasoning and give little time to affections. But in proportion as these convictions grow and take root in the soul, less time is required to renew them, and greater play is allowed to the affections. Smitten with love for God and charmed by the beauty of virtue, we rise with greater ease and loving aspirations towards the author of all good in order to worship him, to praise him, to thank him, to love him. Towards our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, exemplar, master, friend, brother, in order to offer him the tenderest sentiments of love towards the most blessed virgin, the mother of God and and our mother, the dispenser of God's gifts, in order to express to her our filial, trustful, and unselfish love. Other sentiments arise spontaneously in the soul, sentiments of shame, confusion, and humiliation at the sight of our miseries, ardent desires to become better, and confident petitions to obtain the necessary grace. So far, all this sounds very uh, nice and pious. There's no question about that. Whether it's accurate is another question. 
This, according to Tankery, is the prayer of those who have progressed beyond the way of beginners, the prayer of proficient, or those in the illuminative way. There are various effects of this kind of prayer. So, so Tankery just described, you begin with meditation, then you move on to affections, more acts of the will, acts of love and devotion and praise and so forth. And this is what Tankery continues. We realize all the better the worth of the divine attributes. Once we experience the charming tenderness of God's love, desire a frequent communion, for we want to possess as perfectly as we can the object of our love, to welcome him joyfully into our hearts and joyfully abide with him all the day long. In effective prayer, we often find spiritual consolation. There is no purer nor sweeter joy than that found in the companionship of a friend and Jesus, the tenderest and most generous of friends, we relish to his presence a taste of heaven joys. To be with Jesus is a sweet paradise. True, side by side with these joys, there are at times trials such as aridity, but we accept these with sweet resignation and we tell God again and again that in spite of all this, we wish to love and serve him. The thought that we suffer for God's sake alleviates our sufferings and becomes a source of consolation. If we let our hearts produce sentiments of love, of gratitude, of praise, the soul experiences a sweet rest. Cuscally continues, the next step in progress in prayer is, as Tankery explains, to the prayer of simplicity, which comes to one who has entered into the unitive way. Tankery continues, reflection is replaced by an intuitive intellectual gaze. We thereby come to understand first principles without effort, as by an intuition. We grasp them with ease and delight. Thus, the idea of Father applied to God, which at the outset required lengthy reflections before we could grasp its meaning, now appears to us at a glance so rich and so fruitful that we linger with it lovingly in order to relish its manifold elements. It even happens at times that the soul rests content with but a vague vision of God or of divine things which view, however, keeps it sweetly and affectionately in God's presence and renders it more and more docile to the action of the Holy Ghost. The affections undergo a similar simplification. Soon one and the same affection is prolonged during five or ten minutes. The idea of God our Father, for example, excites in our hearts an ardent love, which, without expressing itself in a multiplicity of words, completely absorbs the soul for several minutes. When the soul considers that not only is she privileged to be in the presence of God, but that it is her happiness to possess that presence within her, such thought pierces her to the quick and causes her to enter into a deep state of recollection. She beholds the Godhead with the keenest joy, and she delights in the bliss of her possession, and she finds therein an unspeakable rest, seeing all her longings fulfilled in so far as they can be on earth." And Cuscally comments, The soul having thus entered the unitive way is prepared for infused contemplation, a still higher type of prayer. Before receiving this gift, however, the soul must, after the prayer simplicity just described, pass through the night of the senses. Tankery's exposition of the progress in prayer is simple and easy to understand. Similar explanations are given by Father Poulain and by other authors who follow faithfully these two authorities, unquote. Now, I just want to comment here. To me, I don't necessarily agree that Tankery's exposition is simple and easy to understand. There's, there's too much flowery language for my taste. So before I continue with Father Cuscally's commentary, I wanted to sum up Tankery's scheme of progress, as it were, or stages of progress, according to his exposition. I think this will help clarify things a little bit if you weren't able to piece it together from the quotes from Tankery. For him, the stages are as follows, and they're roughly broken up down to four stages. So number one, you have discursive meditation where the reasonings predominate, and this is the prayer of the beginners. And then you have effective prayer with less use of reasoning and more affections of the will. And this is the prayer of the advanced, or and this entails passing trials of aridity. The third step is the prayer of simplicity or simplified affections with ease and delight. The prayer of those in the first stages of the unitive way, the beginnings of contemplation, according to Tankery. And this is in the unitive stage. 
Then after the beginning of the unit of stage, then you have the night of the senses. And after this comes the various grades of infused contemplation. So again, Tankery has meditation, then effective prayer, then the prayer simplicity or simplified effective prayer. And then uh, the beginnings of the unit of way, you have the night of the senses and the various grades of infused contemplation. So let me get back to what Father Cuscoli says, because when I first read it, I was shocked at his honesty and bluntness, and it certainly made me sit up and take notice. So Father Cuscoli continues, quote, Can many of us who have faithfully practiced prayer over the years say that we have followed this path of progress? In all honesty, most of us must admit that we have failed to do so. What is the reason for our failure? Infidelity to grace? Wrong methods in prayer? The reason is simpler and quite different. It is that Tankery and Poulain and their followers are wrong, hopelessly and utterly wrong. They paint a beautiful picture, but it is the beauty of fantasy. It is unreal and untrue, and the perspective is quite false, at least for the majority of people. Because the works of Tankery and Poulain have been regarded, rightly, as a value, what they wrote about prayer has been widely accepted as quite correct. The necessary consequences for those who read them or hear preachers and retreat givers repeat their doctrine, that we note the difference between their picture, which we take as the ideal, and the reality of our prayer. The normal conclusion then is that something is wrong with our prayer. We either worry about it or resign ourselves to lack of progress. For real progress in prayer and for the peace of mind of many, it is important to stress the fact that this teaching is not correct. Various authorities will be brought forward to prove this point. Here, I will be content to state the fact that for progress in prayer, you must not expect your habitual state of prayer to be one in which you can sincerely say that you are, and he quotes Tankery here, smitten with love for God, charmed by the beauty of virtue, relishing in the presence of Christ, a taste of heaven's joys. At times, trials such as aridity, but we accept these with sweet resignation, touched to the quick by the presence of God, beholding the Godhead with the sweetest joy. She delights in the bliss of her possession, and she finds therein an unspeakable rest. Unquote. When I first read this by Father Cuscoli, I was shocked. I have rarely come across any spiritual writer that states something like that so bluntly, and it was refreshing and reassuring, because in all my years in the monastery, in a religious state, I certainly didn't personally experience Tankery's description of the life of prayer, nor did any religious I knew. You would think that in a contemplative monastery, there should be evidence of progress in prayer. Now, certainly there was evidence, but not evidence of Tankery's conception. Cuscoli continues, quote, at times, trials such as aridity, it will be aridity most of the time. When you begin to pass from the prayer of beginners to the prayer of proficient, and it can't be anything else. The above way of speaking fails to take into account one very enlightening fact. All prayer is the conversation of the human person with God. In its progress, it will normally follow the usual psychological development of the human person. Grace develops the human person. The grace of prayer will not keep us in a stage of juvenile emotionalism, while in all things else we develop along mature lines where feelings, emotions, and youthful enthusiasm give way to a calmer, deeper, more willed exercise of personal dedication to God and his will, unquote. This sentence is the key, I think, in Father Cuscoli. He says, it will be aridity most of the time when you begin to pass from the prayer of beginners to the prayer of proficient, and it can't be anything else. This is the key sentence. Now, I need to explain what precisely Tankery got wrong in his presentation of the progress in prayer and back it up with authorities and show the true picture. So please bear with me. I will break it all down in theory and practice. Let me sum up the crux of the problem. The primary reason why Tankery is wrong is this. He puts the beginning of contemplation and the night of the senses way, way into the unit of stage of the spiritual life, the advanced stage, the perfect stage. But this is way, way too late. Let us recall that the spiritual life has been traditionally divided into three parts or three ages of the interior life, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive stage, or it's sometimes called the beginnings, a beginner's proficient uh, perfect, uh, or beginning beginner's 
advanced and perfect, the transition from discursive meditation and effective prayer into the prayer of mystical contemplation, infused contemplation, comes about by what St. John of the Cross calls the night of the senses. However, St. John of the Cross himself, the doctor of mystical contemplation, he was made a doctor of the church and other writers, clearly put the night of the senses way earlier in the spiritual life than Tankery does. In fact, they put it at the end of the beginner stage as the transitional crisis that brings the soul into the illuminative stage, into the prayer of contemplation. Tankery puts it near the end. St. John of the Cross and others put it near the beginning. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? This may seem merely a difference of theory, but it has potentially huge differences in the practical order. The difference is enormous. The reason is that a beginner, after a year or two or three of generosity in the service of God, will experience the night of the senses. And if they follow tankery or are directed by a priest who uses tankery's scheme or, or doctrine, will think that this night of the senses is just a passing trial, just a passing aridity, a passing dry spell in their prayer life. They will wait patiently for it to pass, but it won't pass. The dryness won't go away. They will feel that progress is impossible. They will go to the director and the director will say that the aridity will pass because they can't be advanced. They have to be a patient. This can't. This trial that they're experiences, experiencing cannot be the night of the senses. That's for advanced, perfect people, perfect souls. That's for saints. And so when a beginner starts experiencing this, they'll think it's just a passing stage of a dryness and it will pass. And then eventually you'll be smitten with love for God and you'll be swooning away with all these consolations and so it either passes or maybe it's the soul's fault that it's in this dryness. This is the problem in putting the night of the senses in the wrong place in the order of the spiritual life. Almost everyone has heard of St. John of the Cross and his famous mystical work, The Dark Night of the Soul, where he describes the spiritual life that befalls the soul in its progress in mystical contemplation. This dark night of the soul actually has two parts or stages in it the dark night of the senses and the dark night of the spirit. So often it's just thrown around, uh, a soul is in the dark night of the soul. There are two parts to that trial, the dark night of the senses, which is more of a beginning stage, a beginning trial, and the dark night of the spirit. That's, that is far more advanced. Very few experience that, more experience the dark night of the senses. And I will prove this by St. John of the Cross's own words which will ultimately contradict Father Tankery. As good as Tankery is in most of his book, he got this one wrong on this point. So in direct contradiction to, to the idea of the Night of the Senses being a very advanced spiritual trial, St. John of the Cross says in his famous mystical work, The Dark Night of the Soul, and this is book one, chapter one, quote, into this dark night, souls begin to enter when God draws them forth from the state of beginners, which is the state of those that meditate on the spiritual road, and begins to set them in the state of progressives, which is that of those who are already contemplatives, to the end that, after passing through it, they may arrive at the state of the perfect, which is that of the divine union of the soul with God." Unquote. So again, he puts it not in the unitive stage, but the, the transition from beginners to the uh, proficients. They're getting there. They're in the, the middle state. And St. John of the Cross in chapter 8 says this, quote, This night, which, as we say, is contemplation, produces in spiritual persons two kinds of darkness or purgation corresponding to the two parts of man's nature, namely the sensual and the spiritual. And thus the one night or purgation will be sensual, wherein the soul is purged according to the sense, which is subdued to the spirit. And the other is a night or purgation, which is spiritual, wherein the soul is purged and stripped according to the spirit and subdued and made ready for the union of love with God. The night of sense is common and comes to many. These are the beginners. And of this night we shall speak first. The night of the spirit is the portion of the very few, and these are they that are already practiced and proficient, of whom we shall treat hereafter." Unquote. Clearly, these two quotes from St. John of the Cross 
contradict Tankery's placement of the Knight of the Senses in the unitive stage. Again, I'm not saying that Tankery and his well-known textbook, The Spiritual Life, is all wrong on every point in it. Actually, for the most part, his book is excellent when dealing with the various virtues and elements of the spiritual life. His bibliography alone is especially useful. So Tankery's book is still overall excellent and worthwhile. It is simply that his treatment of progress and prayer and his placement of the trial called Night of the Senses is not in agreement with St. John of the Cross. In fact, Tankery even describes the Night of the Senses fairly well. He perhaps exaggerates the trials uh, experienced in there, but it's well described. Unfortunately, again, he puts it in the wrong place. That's like describing the London Bridge perfectly down to the last brick, but placing the bridge over the Mississippi River instead of the Thames River in London. So in other words, you get the whole thing wrong if it's in the wrong place, even though you described it. You put it in the, you, you put it in the wrong context. Now, Tankery is following the view of another author before him by the name of Father Poulain. Father Poulain wrote a work called Graces of Interior Prayer, which is an authoritative resource. It's a good book. Unfortunately, the bottom line why Father Poulain and Father Tankery put contemplation and the night of the senses far in the spiritual life is because they think contemplation is an extraordinary and rare grace. And they artificially divide the interior life of the soul into the ordinary way and the extraordinary way, the, the ascetical way and the mystical way. And we have Father Gergou Lagrange, for example, he wrote extensively against this division. Father Gergou Lagrange defended the older view, the more traditional view that makes contemplation the natural goal or term of the spiritual life instead of something miraculous. But more on this, that later. Really, there's just too many issues to deal with all at once. If all this seems boring or just theoretical, please be patient as I will get into the practical before the end of this episode. And the next episode, it'll be far more practical. But first, let me again back up my, my first thesis with a quote from the textbook called The Theology of Christian Perfection by Father Antonio Royal, OP, Dominican. This book is the one used in the True Restoration series called Spiritual, uh, Catholic Spirituality by Fathers Disposito and Father Fleiss. It was so, I was so glad to, when I learned that they were using this textbook as the outline uh, and the textbook for their show. It's a solid book of the Dominican School of Thought. This book, by the way, the English edition was published in 1962, but the original Spanish is uh, 1954, I think. This book and this author, again, doesn't agree with Tankery's treatment of contemplation or the night of the senses, as I will show. And I quote this just to reassure listeners that to disagree with Tankery is not heresy, nor is it saying that Tankery contains heresy, but simply that there are lawful differences in opinion on certain issues. But there are real differences nonetheless. Father Royo says in his chapter on the dark night of the soul, quote, not all the authors of spiritual theology are in accord regarding the place or role of the night of the senses in the spiritual life. Some place it in the period of purgation, and this is the more common opinion. For example, Philip of the Holy Trinity, Anthony of the Holy Ghost, Valagunera, Others, for example, Joseph of the Holy Ghost, maintain that it belongs to the illuminative way. And there are also some others, Tankery in his spiritual life, who place it in the unitive way. It seems to us that according to the teachings of St. John of the Cross, the night of the senses marks the transit between the purgative way and the illuminative way, and that it therefore shares in something of these two states. When the soul enters into the night of the senses, it still belongs to the purgative way, and it is still filled with imperfections and defects from which the night of the senses must purify it. But on leaving this night, purified by those imperfections and illumined by the splendors of infused contemplation, it enters fully upon the illuminative way. The night of the senses marks the transit from one to the other, as St. John of the Cross teaches. The thought of St. John of the Cross is very clear in its reference to the three ways of the spiritual life. A little later, he clarifies his thoughts even more as regards the night of the senses, and his teaching is so explicit that he leaves no room for doubt. 
Therefore, according to St. John of the Cross, the night of the senses marks the transition between the state of beginners and that of the advanced, from the purgative way to the illuminative way, from the ascetical state to the mystical state, from those who meditate in the spiritual life to those who begin to be enlightened by the splendors of infused contemplation, unquote. I just wanted to get this point across first. By putting the spiritual trial of the dark night of the senses in the wrong place and in the wrong order, it won't be recognized when a more or less beginner in the spiritual life starts experiencing it. The dark night of the senses, let me repeat, is not a rare thing, relatively speaking. It is more common than what is generally supposed. And St. John of the Cross said it explicitly. He said, the night of sense is common and comes to many. These are the beginners. Not someone just off the street. They're not even beginning the spiritual life yet. It's for someone who has started to avoid all mortal sin, that, that relatively speaking does not commit a mortal sin and is trying to avoid even venial sins and has a prayer life. They're, those are the beginners in the spiritual life. They're still working on their passions. They're, they're getting them under control. And it may take a, a year or two, but those are the beginners. I think St. John of the Cross is the authority on such matters. He was made a doctor of the church precisely because of his contribution to mystical theology. He was a doctor of mystical theology. That is his title. Now, not everyone who experiences a little dryness in prayer is going through the dark night of the soul, dark night of the senses. There are three signs that St. John of the Cross lists and explains that indicate a soul is passing from meditation to the more simple and spiritual form of prayer called contemplation. When all three signs are present at once, then contemplation is beginning. If only one of those is present, then it's something else. Then it's a passing trial. Then that soul uh, has to be patient in that trial, has to go back to meditation when the trial passes. It's not supposed to give up meditation prematurely. But if all three signs are present, then the soul is being called to a different kind of prayer. In the next episode, I will go more in detail and I'll take each sign and explain it more practically and give examples and quotes. I can think of no better way of introducing the night of the senses in a practical way than by reading an excerpt from another authority in the spiritual life, Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. Father Gabriel was a discalced Carmelite and was a professor of spiritual theology in Rome in the 1940s. He's definitely a well-respected writer on ascetical and mystical theology. He is widely known for his book of daily readings called Divine Intimacy. It's a beautiful book that many use for meditations and spiritual reading. He does have another book that is not so well-known, but it's excellent. It's called St. John of the Cross, Doctor of Divine Love and Contemplation. It's a smaller work uh, that nicely summarizes the mystical doctrine of St. John of the Cross. It's very edifying. The excerpt is lengthy, but again, worth it. As I have said before, I like to include these excerpts and quotes for two main reasons. One, they confirm and back up what I say in these talks, and also give you the ability to hear some of the best material from spiritual books that you may never be able to read or either due to cost or availability. Some of these books are hard to acquire, at least at a mass scale. You're lucky to find some of these books. So, I encourage you to listen carefully and see if this doesn't describe what you may be experiencing in your prayer life. Maybe something similar. It will be very encouraging to learn that you are not alone, that you are not way off track, that the masters of the spiritual life can correctly diagnose your spiritual state and give you advice to further advancement. Now, Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene, quote, St. John of the Cross has answered our fundamental proposition with an unsurpassed competence. Yet he takes his stand upon the common experience of prayerful souls, and therefore, to render his answer more intelligible and more concrete, we shall here tell a little story that is often repeated in a substantially identical manner in many a seminary, convent, and monastery. A young cleric, having entered the senior seminary full of enthusiasm, has learned to make his meditation fervently. I am supposing that he, was, he has been well taught and that his instructors have not put it into his head that he must spend the whole time as, of his mental prayer in considerations. There are certain directors, however, whose practice in this respect is as mistaken as are their theories. 
Some have even been found to question their alumni publicly and require them to give an account of how they have developed the theme or mystery of the meditation. It is easy to understand that faced with such an inquisition, some young people, not wishing to cut too poor a figure in the examination, spend their time in drawing up a little discourse, preaching themselves a sort of sermonette under three heads, etc. This may be useful for the course in sacred eloquence, but here it is a matter of nourishing the soul. Now, until we have succeeding in moving the will, in leading it to love God and make good resolutions for love of him, we have not really nourished the soul. But suppose, as I say, our young man has learnt true meditation and that he is fervent. His fervor will naturally urge him towards more effective prayer. After some months of practice, he frequently does not find it necessary to reflect much upon the heads. He easily establishes that contact with God in which he understands the whole substance of mental prayer consists. He is scarcely in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament than his heart seems to glow. Effective aspirations are fervent and words of love, ardent at times, comes to his lips. But it seems genuine and to our young seminarist, it proves itself a source of ever more generous resolutions. There are times when he does not even feel the need of words. It seems to him that he speaks better by his eager desires only. He likes to be silent for a little while before our Lord really present on the altar. Indeed, at times, in the midst of that silence, he experiences how there come to him thoughts so good, so deep, that spontaneously he attributes them to God himself. Hence, he becomes aware that mental prayer well made is a source of many and various graces of strength in the spiritual life, and it is with increasing satisfaction that he goes to keep his daily appointment with God, happy to be admitted to his presence, delighting to converse with him. He seems to have found true and lasting happiness. But one fine day, lo and behold, the whole scene is changed. He goes faithfully to the chapel at the first sound of the bell for mental prayer, Custom as he is to sensibly sweet and ardent love, he seems to have walked into an atmosphere which is glacial. He does not know what is the matter, but it is as though all at once God has withdrawn into a distance. Since he wants to have him near again, the good youth returns to his wanted meditation. Again, he takes up the consideration of a mystery often hitherto a source of great sweetness, the institution of the Eucharist, in the presence of which he has found such great joy. Useless. He cannot succeed in fixing his attention upon the mystery. It is impossible to string together two holy thoughts. Somewhat depressed, he decides to pass on to the effective part of his prayer, hoping at least to be able to express his love for God. But here he experiences another difficulty. It is absolutely impossible to move his heart. He remains cold, frozen. What is to be done? No longer knowing where to turn, he ends by resigning himself. Patience, he thinks, it will be better tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and brings with it the same trial. It is the same with the following days. He begins to be rather alarmed and can think of no remedy but to go and tell everything to his spiritual director, an excellent resolution, which will bring the solution of the problem, on condition, however, that the director be an intelligent man, instructed in the ways of prayer. Otherwise, the real trouble begins. It happens that after having heard the student's laments, the director says, This is aridity, my son. And what then, father? You must be patient. Aridity is a trial, and when God allows the trial, it is always for our good. Very good. But meanwhile, the poor spiritual son finds small comfort. He knew himself that it was a trial. He felt that keenly enough. What he wants to know is whether there be any remedy. Then it is that, faced with his disciples' insistence, or even sometimes at first, the director begins to advise him, naturally in conformity with what he knows about the life of prayer. And withal, this knowledge is sometimes rather scarce. Now, mistaken ideas on the normal development of prayer are also the cause of bad direction. The type of director has not yet disappeared for whom there exists no ordinary and common prayer except methodical meditation, full of consideration and always ending with fixed purposes of moral amendment. Beyond that, there is only mystical prayer, which he holds to be an extraordinary grace, even a miraculous one. To desire it would be temerious. God grants it only to some mystical soul or other, 
by an entirely free choice of his almighty will. We must on no account intrude ourselves in any way. If God is pleased to grant us mystical prayer, he will know how to do so without our intervention. One thing only concerns us in the practice of mental prayer, meditate and go on meditating. Of course, Father Gabriel is not approving of that. If you cannot meditate, it is perhaps because you do not prepare sufficiently, carefully. Try to do it better. Take your little book, and if you cannot succeed in fixing your attention upon the subject of meditation, read over the meditation and keep it in front of your eyes. It is quite useless, Father, repeats the cleric after a day or two. I get tired and I do not succeed. I feel a distaste for it and my mind is a blank. I feel an extreme repugnance to going to prayer, whereas previously it made all my delight. Then the director's voice becomes grave. See, my son, whether this may not be a punishment for your infidelity, have you perhaps committed some specially serious fault? Father, I feel I am full of faults and I am very sorry for them but I'm not aware of anything specially grievous. Examine yourself well and see whether there may not be some serious sin in your past life that you have never properly confessed, which is now tormenting you. I think you would do well to make a general confession. It seems very trying to me, Father, but I will do so if you wish. With great care and much repugnance, the good youth proceeds to examine his conscience. He passes in review the whole of his previous life, which he had been so glad to forget, in order to devote his whole attention to the present service of God and his happy future priesthood. After hard searching, carried out with all the energy born of the hope of finding himself freed from torment, he makes his confession, receives absolution, and his state of prayer remains the same. Happy he if his director does not require him to begin again. Often, however, after various useless attempts, the latter concludes, My son, you must be resigned to have patience. God is with the afflicted. In the meantime, try always to prepare your prayer well, do your best to meditate, and one day the trial will pass away, and you will find our Lord again and feel better than before. The student sadly goes his way, taking his trouble with him, and notwithstanding his director's assurances, without much hope of ever emerging from it, he is truly deserving of compassion, and he will need great energy and much grace from God to pre persevere in prayer amid sufferings of which the root cause is chiefly the mistaken guidance that he is receiving. Very different is the direction which St. John of the Cross gives to the fervent soul that falls into aridity through no fault of its own. On no account will he have it forced to meditate. He declares expressly that the time for meditation is past. Indeed, to wish to meditate now is to hinder God's action in the soul. Let us listen to his energetic words from his book, Living Flame of Love. Quote, St. John of the Cross here, speaking, During this period, the soul must be guided in an exactly contrary manner to the former. If hitherto they gave it material for meditation and it meditated, now rather let them take away the material and forbid it to meditate. For however much it might desire to do so, it would be unable, and instead of being recollected, it would be distracted. And if previously it sought and found sensible fervor and love, let it no longer either seek or desire it, since notwithstanding all its diligence, it will not find it, but will even find dryness. In this state, they must absolutely refrain from forcing it to meditate or make acts or try to procure a sensible fervor, since to do so would be to place an obstacle in the way of the principal agent, that is God, who in a hidden and silent manner is infusing wisdom and loving knowledge into the soul. What a joy to our poor young cleric if instead of his director's admonitions, which bring him small comfort, he had heard these clear words of the saint. These at least seem to meet his need. He finds from experience that he is no longer able to practice meditation, then why tie him down absolutely to something which, despite his goodwill, he can no longer manage to do? What a deliverance the words of St. John seem to be. However, not to meditate is a negative counsel. True, it frees the soul from an anxiety, but the latter requires also to know positively what to be done. The saint does not leave it in suspense. On its part, he continues, let it simply lovingly fix its attention upon God without specific acts. Let it occupy itself in loving attention quite simply as one who opens his eyes and fixes them lovingly upon the beloved object. 
Hence, there is also a positive proceeding for the soul. It must exercise itself in a general and loving attention to God who is present. Instead of multiplying considerations, let it be content with this gazing accompanied with love in the will. Let it learn to keep God company by simply remaining in his presence and desiring to love him. And, says the saint, God will help it to be recollected. We are at the opposite pole from the direction given to our seminarist by his undiscerning director. But in fact, upon what does St. John of the Cross base his teaching? The whole of this doctrine rests upon his discerning intuition. He had discovered what many had never noticed, and he has proclaimed aloud, and with a voice that the Holy Church has now made her own, that God works very quickly in souls that generously go to meet him. The contemplative graces are not a privilege reserved to a few specially beloved of God and called to an extraordinary life but are commonly met with in souls. It is quite ordinary for God to begin to draw recollected souls to contemplation after a short period of fervent life, unquote. So that is all that I wanted to read from God, uh, Father Gabriel today. I know it was long, but I think that excerpt from his book is simply golden and basically sums up everything that I wanted to say in these episodes, in fact. He says it so well. So please go back and listen to it again and see again if your experience is the same as that young seminarist. There's going to be some tweaks, of course, some changes, but in, in the big picture, see if you fall in that pattern. In the next episode... I need to go over some of the points brought up by Father Gabriel and expand upon them. And I will, I will go over in greater detail the various signs that indicate that God is drawing the soul to contemplation by the night of the senses. Again, St. John of the Cross lists three of them. Also, I will explain what exactly contemplation is and what side effects it has on someone's interior life. And just noticed, I just want to quickly say what St. John of the Cross is happening here. He said that God is the principal agent in contemplation, and that he says, quote, that is God who in a hidden and silent manner is infusing wisdom and loving knowledge into the soul. That's really the definition of contemplation, infused loving knowledge of God. So next episode, again, I will give some practical advice on what the soul should do to cooperate with this wonderful grace how to contemplate, as it were, what to do and what not to do. Remember, the beginnings of contemplation is more common than some might think. Remember St. John of the Cross, he said, the night of sense is common and comes to many. These are the beginners. Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene says, the contemplative graces are not a privilege reserved to a few specially beloved of God and called to an extraordinary life, but are commonly met with in souls. It is quite ordinary for God to begin to draw recollected souls to contemplation after a short period of fervent life. And I have seen this uh, over my years as a priest and spiritual director. I've seen many souls that are not uh, in the unit of stage, but they have all the signs that St. John of the Cross uh, explains. They are in that transition period and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to proceed. They don't know what uh, prayer is, really. They think it's found in a prayer book. And so they load themselves with more and more vocal prayers, and they're disgusted with them because it's words. And at the end of the day, the soul hungers for God and not thoughts about God. It doesn't want just words about God. It wants God himself. And when the soul comes to that realization that there's two different things there, the thought about God and God himself, the thought about God is not satisfying. It's not complete. It's not God himself. And the soul in love wants God himself. It's like when you fall, human love and were you to fall in love with someone, you don't just want a picture of that person. You don't just want a, a description in a book. You want the person itself, himself or herself. So in the spiritual life, it's the same. You get tired of just saying words and words. You want God himself. And so God starts to infuse a knowledge of himself and a love for him in a hidden way. And that, that infusion of knowledge 
which is what contemplation is, causes the night of the senses, causes you to be unable to meditate. It's called the ligature, the binding of the senses. And I will talk about that in another episode. But knowledge about contemplation is so important for a healthy spiritual life, for spiritual progress, because many, many people experience this or can experience this when they know that there is these stages of spiritual life beyond just vocal prayers. If you think vocal prayer is the whole of the spiritual life, you only have 1% of it uh, understood. Uh, It's especially important to understand the beginnings of contemplation and what the dark night of the senses is because that transition period can be difficult. And and if you have the wrong understanding of it or the wrong direction, it's going to be doubly uh, difficult. So the knowledge helps us get through it to cope with the new form of prayer God is granting us. So it's like God getting you from the ground, getting you from crawling like a baby to start walking. And when you start walking, it's different. You don't like it. It, it, You're going to be falling around, but eventually you're going to start running and then you're going to start flying in the spiritual life. But you need that transition period is so important, so important. Because contemplation starts dry and arid and crucifying even. It's a trial. But eventually, it flowers into the heights of mystical union with God, as described by St. Teresa of Avila. States of prayer that bring profound joy and ecstasy to the soul in union with God, that parallel heaven on earth, that parallel heaven. But to get to the heights of sanctity and a mystical union with God, the gateway is the dark night of the senses. That is why it is so important to know what it is, how to recognize it, and how to act. I will close with the words of St. Teresa of Avila. It is a great happiness for a soul to find a description of what she experiences. She clearly recognizes the path in which God has placed her. I say more, it is an immense advantage in order to make progress in the various states of prayer to know the line of conduct to be followed in each of them. As for myself, through want of this knowledge, I have suffered much and lost much precious time.